0: Colossians 1. And we also turn in, if you don't have your handout or if you're at home and you're listening to this, you could turn to chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, that's page 935, section 6. Let's read first God's holy word, Colossians 1, starting at verse 13, and then we'll read to verse 23. This is God's holy and infallible word. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether the things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly blood body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul was made a minister and then we look at the Confession of Faith chapter 25 section 6 There is no other head of the Church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. Let's pray together. We ask, blessed Lord, that you would open this, your word, unto us. Help us to rejoice um, that Christ is head. Christ is God. Christ is the glorious, almighty Savior who reconciles all things to himself, both on, in heaven and on earth. And we pray that you would help us to exalt him and rejoice that you have given that your Son, Jesus our Lord, as both Savior, Lord and King and Head over all. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Contrary to popular opinion and contrary to the claims of the Roman Catholic Church, it has not been the case that the Pope has been the head of the church, going back all the way to Peter, um, there's not, and in other words, there's not an unbroken line of what we call papal authority from Peter to the modern day. Um, if you, um, if you have a um, a pope that was in different areas of the of the world as popes plural. It undoes the notion that you would have a singular pope throughout history, but it was the case that there were multiple popes before the establishment of a supreme pope. Um, I did a history uh, class in seminary, and I did a, a, a writing on Pope Gregory the Seventh, or whose name was also called Hildebrand. And the reason I did a a, a writing upon this particular pope was because it was a very instrumental time in history where there was both a transfer of power from numerous popes of different regions to one pope that had that title in Rome. And no other man after that point would have that title of pope except the one who reigned there in Rome. So it's a very important time in history. According to Britannica, the term Pope, um, which was also Latin Papa, was originally applied to the bishops in the West and also used to describe the patriarch in Alexandria, who still retains the title. In 1073, however, Pope Gregory VII restricted its use to the Bishop of Rome. In other words, he... Um, was very political and very wise in how he acted, but he had an agenda. He wanted one man to reign supreme over the church, and then he was granted his wish, which I think was not something that was good for the church at all. The other uh, major change that this Pope Gregory succeeded in enforcing was also the celibacy of um, clergy. Before that time, clergy were allowed to marry um, in Germany. I, m- I remember that there, was, there were Germans who wrote to the Pope at the time to Hildebrand, pleading him not to go that route. And they cited two particular scriptures. The first one they cited was 1 Timothy 3, 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Titus 1, 5. Elders likewise are to be the husband of one wife, Um, It seems pretty clear in Scripture to me, doesn't it, that a clergy member, a bishop, an elder, um, those who are ordained to office in the church are allowed to marry. Um, Peter was allowed to have a wife. Um, There's even an argument in Scripture where they argue that why aren't we allowed to have a a believing wife like Peter? Um, uh, What's interesting is that the Germans are back at it again um, they wrote to the Pope, or the, the would-be Pope, or the wannabe Pope, or the, this one who would soon become Pope, complaining, using Scripture, giving their case why it wasn't biblical. But now it's, it's happening again that there is a cardinal in Germany, uh, Cardinal um, Reinhard Marx. I don't like that last name, Marx, but um, I like what he's talking about. Reinhard Marx is a Catholic a cardinal and he wrote that celibacy of priests is something described as precarious. And he said sexuality is a part of human nature. And what he's arguing, therefore, is not that they have to be married, but to give the allowance that if they, they could have both celibate priests and married priests. And part of this has arisen from all the sexual scandal going on in the Catholic Church because what they've done and what they've enforced is contrary to nature it's contrary to scripture so we'll see there's some talk of maybe even having a a church split over this particular matter Um, the passage in question that is undoubtedly uh, the best I would say in teaching that Jesus Christ is absolute head the only head of the church is found in Colossians 1 as we have just read uh, Colossians one is, I believe, one of the strongest texts possible. Um, it summarizes his work of salvation in two verses at the beginning, in verses uh, thirteen and fourteen. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a beautiful description of how Christ came and brought us uh, to God through His work um, and transferred us from one kingdom to the other, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of, of the beloved Son. Um, and then later on, he goes in, after describing this, this summary of salvation, he's going to talk a little bit more about it later in the, in the chapter. Um, he goes on and establishing the deity of Christ, again here, This is a passage that gives one of the most absolute defenses of the deity of Christ. Um, Look at verses 15 through 17. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he talks about Jesus Christ being the one who does the works of God, the creation of all things through him, the sustaining of all things through him, both creator and sustainer. Therefore, having those two things to describe you If you do the work of God, then you have to assume he is God. And then here's the passage again about Christ as absolute head of the church. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Head of the church, he's described... Uh, there, now what's, what's strange and interesting is that you have Christ as supreme creator, sustainer, God, the divine one. Then you have Christ as head of the church. And you have this bookend where, where Christ as head of the church. On the, on the end of it is Christ again as creator. So it's Christ, glorious creator, Christ, head of the church, and then Christ, cr- the creator again. But here, in verses 19 and 20, it's as it's describing this cosmic authority of the lord jesus christ for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross through him i say whether things on earth or things in heaven again it's like a, it's bookends on when it, Christ creator, Christ head of the church, Christ creator, glorious cosmic uh, authority. It's a, it's a beautiful, magnificent passage. Um, we turn next to a passage that, again, another passage that gives us some proof of Christ as head of the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Paul here is giving a prayer, but also instruction on the truth of who Christ is. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might in which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's the part about being head of the church. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under him, under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So both passages talk about Christ as reigning over all creation, and of course that also includes the church as well. So, um, Christ, is he head over the church or is he head over all things? Both. He's God. He's head over all. He's absolute sovereign over all. And we understand that why if someone in their right mind would want to take the place of Christ. Christ is head of the church. Why would you want to establish yourself as being head over the church when Jesus Christ is head as well. Now, Christ is head, not as well, but Christ is head and you're not. Um, It's not just the Roman Catholic Church that has had a problem with this. It's the Episcopal Church as well. Well, if you don't like what the Pope's doing and you don't like what the Pope says about you getting a divorce and getting remarried and all this, well, why don't you just make yourself head of the church? And that's what happened in England. Uh, King Henry VIII established himself as head over the Church of England. So, well, it's still a, a serious infraction upon uh, Scripture. It's still a transgression, you could say, of Holy Scripture. There's only to be one head over the, over the Church, Jesus Christ, and not one man over a nation of the Church, uh, of, of a particular nation of some sort. Now, I believe that the reason... Paul gives these two passages. Again, it's Paul that gives these two passages that describe Christ as the absolute head over the church and a glorious head over all creation. And it fits. It fits with what Jesus said in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, I'm the head of heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because Jesus Christ is head over the church, that's why we can go to all nations, and because he's head over the church, the entire creation, we can go to all nations and do mission work, even in those nations that oppose the work of the gospel. Because who reigns supreme even above the rulers of those nations? Christ. And Christ said that he would establish his church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that Christ's church will include people of every nation, tribe, and tongue and that he will accomplish his work. And yes, there are times when people suffer and suffer persecution and trial and tribulation and doing mission work especially, maybe even have their, their life at dire risk, but he promised that he would be with them. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, getting aside from the Roman Catholic Church and getting aside from the Episcopal Church, what about the ab- abuses of power in various local small congregations as well? I, I think it's a serious problem when you have individual churches who are ruled by one person. When you have an individual church where one man reigns in authority, it's a serious issue because it acts as, he acts as though he is the head of that particular congregation. And that is one of the blessings why I love Presbyterianism. Because we don't have the head, one man as head or ruler over a congregation. We have a multiplicity of those who are ruling elders and teaching elders. And therefore, it's a much better situation to be uh, in a multitude of counselors, you could say, as being a head over a congregation rather than one man in authority. Uh, church government. Church government. Um, there's something called uh, hierarchy, a hierarchical uh, type of church government. That's included in the Roman Catholic Church. It's also included in the Methodist Church and the Episcopal Church. And basically, it's you have different you have the, you have ministers over local congregations, and then you might have someone over a region, but then you might have a bishop over the entire state. And this hierarchy is something that fits more with one man being a head or in some cases it's a woman, being a head over a particular entire state. Uh, one example, I believe, is in the, uh, the Methodist Church. You have a, from what I'm told from some of my, uh, the ministers I know in the, in the community, there is one woman who resides over the entire Methodist, United Methodist Church in Louisiana. And you could say that she's considered as head over the Methodist Church of Louisiana. And one of the reasons why I would never want to be a Methodist is because uh, they force you to fit the mold of Wesley. Well, Wesley was an itinerant preacher. He went from place to place. He, he spent some years in one community and established a church, and then he went to another community, community and established a church. And because Wesley was that way, well, we think every minister needs to imitate John, I mean, in, imitate Wesley. So, therefore, you know, Kevin, you're you're in uh, Pineville, Louisiana. We think your ministry is getting kind of stale. It's time for you to move. You and your whole family need to move and go to um, Zachary, Louisiana or uh, Crowley, Louisiana or maybe Homa, And then you stay there for four or five years and then you get picked up and then the, the head of the church moves you to another location. Well, is that good for a congregation? Uh I don't think it's good for one's family or for the minister as well. That's what happens is that when you have men, or in this case a woman, uh, acting as a head over a particular church. They basically rule in accordance to man's notions rather than what the Holy Scripture says. They make dictates of man as at the same equal authority of Holy Scripture. Oh, because someone in history of our church did X, Y, and Z, that's why we have to have church in this particular fashion. Again, Ephesians 1 says, God the Father put all things in subjection, that means to be placed in submission, under His feet, and gave Him, that is Jesus Christ, as head over all, All things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you want the blessings of a sound church, take Christ as the only head. Man is not your authority, no individual person is your authority, but Christ is the ultimate authority. One last point is that. When we have Presbyterianism, again, rather than this hierarchical system, we have not one man that's head over anything. We had the, uh, the the first ecumenical council in Acts 15, you could say was, or the first general assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the New Testament, is when they got together, the church gathered as a whole, and not one person was considered head over the church. It was representatives of all the churches came together and they met and then they decided upon what was going to need to be done on the sake of the church. That's Presbyterianism rather than having a high hierarchy where any one person reigns as head over the church. Now let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you that you have blessed us with Jesus Christ as both our supreme head over the church. We thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we thank you that it is through him only that we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. We pray, O Father, that you would help us to greatly appreciate the, the history that we have, but also we pray the, um, the biblical roots that we have in Presbyterianism. And we do pray that you would help us to remember that Jesus Christ reigns supreme as head over your church. Not one man, not one pastor, not one elder, but Lord, that your holy word as given by the authority of your Son um, reigns over all. And we thank you, Lord, for your blessed word. And we thank you for your blessed Son. And we ask you that you would help us to embrace him by saving faith and to grow in our appreciation of him and of this church. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.